is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to this episode of Transitional Matters, where we look at transitional change, change in society, change in us, and how we respond to disruption, uncertainty, and, and everything in between. Today, I'm joined by a rather special guest. It's Dr. Jim Taylor. I met Jim, or I'm going to say 25 years ago, in a Killington Mountain School and it was Jim who introduced me to performance psychology. Uh, before this, I had absolutely no idea what this was about. So, Jim, welcome to the show. It's absolutely amazing to have you on and to be back in contact with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, it was fun that uh, and gratifying to hear that you remembered me after 25 years and that I actually had an impact on your life. So thank you for that. And so happy, happy to be here today to just chat it up about some fun, some fun and interesting topics. Well, yeah, let's just see where the conversation goes. Before we dive into that, could I get you to kind of lay out your background, the things you've done, because your career has taken you in, in many different ways. You're still accomplishing major things right now as well. I'm talking about your triathlon stuff, but you have several books to your name. You've worked with sports people, business people. I could keep going, but I'll let you I know you said that you're rather shy about this, but I'm going to encourage you to um, tell everybody like what you've done. Sure. I appreciate that. I mean, I'll stick with the facts um, and then the listeners can decide how, how, how good I am, I suppose. Um, I have a PhD in psychology and my career has been devoted to performance psychology, personal growth, helping people achieve their goals. And as you well know, so much of life, uh, whether sports or business or medicine or military or whatever is very psychological. So I, I help people strengthen their minds so they can accomplish their goals and, and really just get where they want to go, as well as overcoming the many challenges that are part and parcel to everyone's lives these days. In addition, I've been an elite athlete all my life. As um, you indicated, I spoke at uh, Killing Mountain School. For, I'm sure most listeners don't know what, what KMS was, but it's, it was a ski academy. And I actually um, was an elite ski racer as, in my youth. I was world ranked. And uh, with a little bit of humility saying that, because the way I, I characterize it is that I competed against the best in the world, Chris, but they weren't worried about me. But I reached a high level and um, was very gratifying. And along the way, uh, I've run marathons. I'm a secondary black belt in karate. And my passion for it quite a number of years has been um, triathlon. And I'm, um, I just returned actually from Germany literally two days ago where I competed in the World Triathlon Championships. And where I'll pat myself in the back here, I, I, I was on the podium in one race, won the bronze medal in one event, and then um, I was fifth in the other. So it, it's a, a big part of my career and my life has been about practicing what I preach. I have to use a lot of the tools and ideas and insights and perspectives that I teach to my clients in my own life, whether it's, it's continuing to grow as, as a professional in the mental health field um, with a PhD in psychology or as an athlete or as a parent for that matter. So I really try to live, live my, my work in a very real way. 
So did your kind of psychology career start with sports? Was that the natural progression from being a skier into gaining your PhD and going into performance psychology within the sporting arena? Yes, absolutely. And there's a cliche that people become psychologists to figure themselves out. And so, for example, if, if there's a history of depression in the family, that they might study depression. If there's mysterious, other mysterious mental illness, they might study those things. Well, as a, as a young ski racer, I was it was called a mind job or a head case, meaning my mind got in the way of my ski racing. And at, when I was 17, I was, I was a previous ski racer. I was like maybe 40th in the nation, pretty decent, but my head always got in the way. I didn't have confidence. I got nervous, was distracted, worried a lot. And then one summer, I, I took a class related to sports psychology. And I applied a lot of those strategies then to my, my ski racing career after that. And that next year, I had, I had my breakthrough year. And where I went top 20 in the nation, I was in the top five of every, sl- of, of every slalom race I was in, except one. I qualified for the US ski team. But for me, the amazing thing that struck me was that I didn't change that dramatically physically or, 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 or technically. So it was all really the mental stuff. And so when I got to college, I took introductions to psychology class. And the way I characterize it is that I didn't choose psychology. It chose me. It was just like, it wasn't a choice. It was just the path that I was chosen to take for, you know, the almighty gods or whatever um, chose me to take that path. And so I've been doing it for a very long time and it's been immensely gratifying. And um, I've been very fortunate. Uh, Mark Twain once said, find something you love to do. You'll never work a day in your life. And I feel that way. Every day I come into my office and I love writing. I love um, speaking. I love doing podcasts with people like you. And I love working with my clients. So I feel very fortunate that I found my, my thing, air quotes thing. And where I have a purpose, where I have a passion. And again, after many decades, I still love what I do. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's so much from what you've just said there that, that resonates with me. In fact, I'm going to throw something back at you. I'm not sure whether I told you this last time we spoke, but it's your fault entirely that I have kind of always had these two streams to my life. And that is because you said a phrase to me when I was like 14 years old, and you said, there's a physical game and there's a mental game. And now this was, this was earth shattering to me, okay, because I'd spent all of my attention just on the physical game of, of ski racing. And I was hitting the gym, I was hitting the slopes, I was kind of doing everything I could to be technically proficient. Yeah, I was a super anxious athlete, so much so that I would normally kind of really kind of not rank very well in the first run. And then have nothing to lose and no pressure on my shoulders and, and catch up in the second. It was like the most inefficient way to race. And if I happened to do well in the first run, vice versa, I'd do terribly in the second. And so it was you that kind of introduced this idea that there's far more to a sport. And I'm going to widen this out into like society, business, certainly entrepreneurship and investment, that there's a physical game or what I now talk about, a technical game and a mental game. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw that back at you because I, I completely blame you for that. Well, um, I'll, I'll take so exactly. responsibility for that. It sounds like things turn out pretty well for you. And, and I also, for the, for the, for the listeners, want to really give a, another perspective on with sports is the physical side. But let's say in the business world, again, I, I've worked with surgeons. I've worked with all I've worked with performing artists. Um, I've worked with a lot of people where it doesn't apply to performing artists, where it's not necessarily technical. But so a business person, for example, an investment person might have all the knowledge in the world, but if they don't know how to apply it, to think calmly, to think rationally when the market's booming, when the market's uh, crashing, then all that knowledge doesn't matter. So it's really how you handle the challenges that life presents 
that enables you to become ultimately successful. Not necessarily are you the most gifted athlete, although certainly at the very top, they're all gifted and you don't have to have a Harvard MBA or be, have an IQ of 150, although many of them do who make it at the top. But, um, but you have to have those capabilities. That's the foundation. But you need something more than that. And the great ones in any field have more than just the physical, the technical, the knowledge base, all those things. And that's what goes on between their ears. No, I think that was very well put that, you know, to be at the top of your game, yes, you need all that technical or physical side, but you don't get there unless, as you say, the mental side's there too. So let's broaden this out into kind of disruption in society. I mean, we're obviously in this period of rapid change. My view is that this is just beginning, that we kind of live at this very pivotal moment in, in human history. Talk me through some of the things that you would expect either to see happen in society or kind of some of the things you're, you are observing in terms of that mental game, if we talk about that in, in kind of business or, or society in general, because we're obviously seeing, you know, kind of stress levels increase, burnout increase, anxiety increase. I personally normally talk about this in terms of what uncertainty does to us and why we get so triggered by uncertainty, because as an organism, we like to know what's going on. Human beings don't like change. And I'm very much an evolutionist yeah. in, in that um, we like to think this is, is human beings. We have these, we're have these highly evolved beings with the cerebral cortex up here. I'm holding my hand in my head and this thing up front called the prefrontal cortex. But the fact is that we've only been human beings, homo sapiens for about 250,000 years. With my clients and when I speak to people, I often talk about, um, we do a lot of time traveling and don't think I'm crazy. We don't literally time travel, but when I compare life now to life on the Serengeti where we first became Homo sapiens 250,000 years ago. And the fact is that, again, we've only had the cerebral cortex and the ability to think rationally and deliberately for a short time, whereas we've been animals since we climbed out of the primordial muck for billions of years. So we're trying to use a part of our brain that's attempting to resist billions of years of evolution. And one of the most fundamental aspects of evolution is that we don't like uncertainty. And, and more specifically, there are three things we don't like. Unfamiliarity, unpredictability, and lack of control. That's pretty much the nutshell of uncertainty. Why don't we like it? Because on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago, or before we officially became Homo sapiens, if we experienced unfamiliarity, unpredictability, and lack of control, do you know what was likely to follow, Chris? Death. The world has changed a lot in 250,000 years. The world has changed dramatically over the last 25, especially, and, and the last 50 or so because of all the technological advances, um, and especially with the advent of the internet and so on. And we are not prepared for that. And so there are a number of things that make change difficult. One is our primitive instincts. We still fundamentally react to the world in ways that just like we did with our ancestors 250,000 years ago. The change is this, is that back then it was about life or death. Our survival instinct, fight or flight, was about literal physical life or death. We were going to die if we didn't run really fast or fight ferociously. The fact is that yep. in modern society, there are very few saber-toothed tigers on the streets, at least in Northern California. I can't speak on the UK, although I have been to the UK. I haven't seen any saber-toothed tigers there. No, none ro roaming the streets. None roaming the streets. And also there are relatively few rival tribes people and they do exist, but fundamentally the chances of us physically dying are relatively slim, but 
we still respond to any sort of threat to ourselves. So in a way, what we've done is shifted our survival instinct from physical life or death to psychological life or death. And I suppose there are, it is physical life or death to some degree in that, for example, um, losing your job. Now, you're not going to die if you lose your job. But if you lose your job, you stop making money, you can't eat, you don't have shelter, you don't have clothing on your back, which could potentially lead to death. Not likely these days, but that's the reaction we have. So the problem is, is fight or flight worked unbelievably well in the Serengeti 250,000 years ago. It doesn't work well in 2023 modern life. So if you fight, you're probably going to go to jail. If you run, you're probably not going to get anything you want. And so in theory, we have our cerebral cortex and our prefrontal cortex. That should enable us to make better decisions other than fighting and running. But again, we're resisting billions of years of evolution. So our natural reaction is to freak out because it worked for billions of years until basically, I don't know, the last hundred years or so. And evolution takes a really long time, Chris. So at some point, we won't react this way. But certainly not in my lifetime. That's for not, not in the next hundred million years, perhaps. I don't know. So that's a real challenge for us is simply resisting our primitive instincts. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point there because we're now talking about biology as well, aren't we? I know your PhD is psychology, but you know, now we're getting into brain chemistry and kind of actually what happens at that physiological level that we don't sometimes have access to that prefrontal cortex. You know, that kind of that lovely rational kind of moderator, it goes offline. Right. Now we do have access to it. We do have the capacity, but it's very difficult to access. And, and when I talk about psychology, I don't think about mind-body. It's all body. The brain is a part of the body. So everything I do, it's biochemistry. It's, it's neurochemistry. It's really important to not make that distinction. It's like, oh, my mind is body. No, no, no. It's all the same stuff. I talk about it at a more manifest level. Neuroscience is not my expertise. I have some knowledge in it. But, but I'm, I'm thinking like, like I get my clients, I don't give them drugs to change their, their neurochemistry. I give them insights and so on, because one thing that's very important to realize is that we can change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we behave and the way we perform both inside and out. So we can change our neurochemistry and that changes the way we think, feel, behave and perform. Or we can change the way we think, feel, behave and perform, which changes our neurochemistry. And then there's a ton of evidence. That, that there is this reciprocal relationship. And certainly sometime in the, in the future, not in my lifetime again, when we start thinking negatively or we get anxious, we'll take, we'll, I don't know, do something that will change the wiring. And then of course there'll be the, there'll be, um, there'll be genetic changes where we can like erase, eradicate anxiety or erad- eradicate negative thoughts. I suppose that's, you know, you're a futurist. That's going way into the future. In the meantime, we have to deal with what we have. And that's really where my work comes in is helping people navigate the stressors, the difficulties, the uncertainty, the disruption in a way that's healthy and productive. It's fascinating stuff. I know you and me could just talk about this for hours, but I want to kind of go on to kind of, so how would you implement that? Because for me, when I'm working with people, so I have a framework, which I call the pause, pause, move framework. And that is essentially... The first pause is about inner awareness. So it's bringing that stress state down. Because when people are over aroused, that's really what we're talking about. They've increased their stress response to get to a, either a hyper focus or an energized state. And you can't, in the business world, 
you know, we value creativity, we value insights and breakthroughs, which just don't happen unless you're in that calm state. So for me, that first pause is about that. The second pause follows, and I then talk all about playfulness as a an approach for finding solutions and experimentation and collaboration, actually. How would you go about it? Because your approach might be very, very different to mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love your approach. It is interesting. And we probably do many similar things, just maybe different vocabulary and, and different, different structure, I suppose, or frameworks to it. But I agree that the self-awareness is the, is the first step. Because if you, if you freak out, if you stress out and you're not aware of it, if you don't acknowledge it, you can't change it. You are just absorbed, immersed in that experience and you're not getting out. I guess, again, I, I get kind of primitive here. Because basically what happens, stress is started out and can be still a very healthy reaction. It's basically a very visceral, unconscious awareness that our life is threatened. And again, physical life, psychological life, it doesn't matter. And so being able to recognize, being able to step back and go, my reaction is threat here. And as you allude to, there's no way to be playful, to be creative, to be innovative, to think atypical ways. When your life is threatened, listeners can't see me, but I'm putting my hands in front of my, my arms in front of my face, basically protecting myself from the perceived threat of the, of the rival tribesmen with the big club. And in that state, you're closing yourself off. And I use the metaphor also, another metaphor of building a castle. For some reason, I think about Middle Ages England, um, a little Monty Python thrown in. And I think about the Visigoths, who should pillage and plunder the countryside. So they're very scary people. So the best way back then to protect yourself from the Visigoths was to build a really big castle, high walls, big gate, moat. They can't get in. The problem is yeah. that castle can turn into a prison. As long as you're inside, you're safe, but you can never leave. So this understanding of how can I create a situation with myself where I don't feel the need to protect myself? And this is very, very important these days, both in terms of creativity, innovation, but also in terms of relationships. Because if you are closed off to the world, protecting yourself from the world, other people perceive that, they sense that. And so they're not going to come in. They're not going to come toward if they feel like you're totally closed off. And so you can't build relationships. And one thing that's changed a lot, as you well know, in the entrepreneur world and in the, in the idea generation world, is it used to be the single thinker. What is the Edison's, the, the Gates's, whatever. And there was the, like the one brilliant guy or gal who thought of stuff. But now it's very much more of a collaborative approach that ideas are generated through more, different perspectives, different skill sets, different insights and ideas. Sort of advances these days tends to be collaborative. Two things there, both is closing yourself off from, from thinking. Because again, on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago, if you step back and had self-awareness and went, huh, this rival tribesman has a really big club and I think he's going to pummel me. So what are my options here? Well, by then you're dead. Whereas now, if you react that way, you're dead. Not literally, of course, but you're not going anywhere. Your mind closes off. Your physiology closes off. Your access to other people and people's access to you is closed off. So the first step for me is recognizing the threat and what's the threat. And the threat is usually sort of psychological in terms of your self-identity your self-esteem, and your goals. Let me clarify that. If you're a brilliant futurist or I can, a brilliant psychologist or whatever, 
if I perceive a situation where I'm not that way, that's very threatening to my self-identity. Like, who am I then? It's also threatening to your self-esteem. It's like, well, what value do I have? And it's also threatening to my goals. It's like, I'm not going to get where I want to go. So it's important. Why am I reacting this way? What's the threat? And it's usually about how you perceive yourself or how others will perceive yourself or whether you can get where you want to go. Because if you can remove the threat, and so much of my work is about removing the threat, whether it's before an Olympic ski release yeah. or a, a presentation to um, a, a venture capitalist or asking you to marry, asking somebody to marry you even at a, at a very basic level. And so what's that threat? And that threat, that very visceral, physiological, neurological threat comes with some sort of perception. And that perception is often unconscious, Chris. That's the challenge. And so much of my work is about bringing the unconscious to consciousness. So what is it that unconsciously is so threatening to you? Because the situation is it's not life or death. There'll be disappointment if it doesn't work out. In many cases, yes. But it's not worthy of this unbelievable, primitive, neurophysiological reaction. And so if you can clear that threat out, then you can open yourself up. And one of the exercises that I actually do with, with many of the people I work with is before they head into a stressful situation, I literally have them open their arms. Because again, that distinction between having your arms, your hands up in front of your face, protecting you, because another key part of, of becoming your best at anything is becoming vulnerable. And what's the vulnerability? Failure. So failure has become akin to death. The problem is that having that reaction that protects you from failure actually causes failure. Because if you're not open, and for the listeners, I'm opening my arms to the world literally, but it's also metaphorical, that if I to open myself up to the world, two great things happen. My mind is open to new ideas, to nonlinearity, to creativity. Because nobody ever thought of anything really earth-shattering by thinking linearly. You're just doing what everybody else has done, maybe with a little tweak or two. And so opening up is so important, removing the threat. And again, I guess this is the core of so much of my work, Chris, is that is removing the threat, opening yourself up to the world, accepting I might fail. But as you well know with entrepreneurs, they fail frequently and monumentally until hopefully they, be, they get the unicorn or maybe they realize I'm not cut out for this and I'm going to get a real job. Also, from an interpersonal perspective, when you open yourself up to the world, people sense that. I think rejection from other people may be the greatest threat in terms of failure. Because it's not just like, I lost the ski race or I lost the triathlon. It's like, I fail. There's something about me. Why doesn't she or he love me? Why doesn't the investment bankers, why don't they want to invest in my company? And so if you can let go of all that, then people sense that and they're going to want to come in. And that's where, at a very personal level, that's where you develop such healthy relationships, whether in the business world or in marriages or family or friendships. That ability to be open, that enables the, the um, evolved mind, prefrontal cortex to engage. Because the, the amygdala, which is the foundation, the amygdala, again, brain anatomy, it's a part of the brain um, in the primitive part that it's a filter for all information. And its singular purpose is to instantaneously decide whether this situation is threatening or not. So if you can disengage that, then all that information from the world and also in your head is going to hang a right and go up into your prefrontal cortex, where then you can sit back and go, huh, what are my options here? What's going on here? And make good choices. 
Or also you open up your mind, you take away the power of the amygdala. And what happens then is your mind is open to be free to just think of stuff. But it's interesting because I'm often asked when I give talks or I speak at a conference, like, where do you get your ideas? And I did forget to mention, pat myself on the back here. I've written 19 books. That sounds like a really cool thing, I suppose. But for me, it wasn't an option. I had to write these books because to not write, whether it's a blog post or to, or to, or to, or to speak on, on a podcast and share my ideas, that's antithetical to who I am. So having that ability to just open yourself up to the world and to yourself, that's where greatness comes from. And I define greatness at a very personal level because it's like, I haven't cured cancer. You know, I haven't figured out perpetual motion or anything like that. But in our own way, we look for our own ways of thinking about the world differently. Yeah, absolutely. I've written down just two things here while you've been talking. One of them is toxic workplaces. And I want to bring this back to what you were talking about, how when we're picking up cues in the environment, it's obviously not just these massive transitional life moments. We lose a job, we get divorced, we lose a, a loved one or whatever. It's also we're picking up whether the environment is safe or not by the people around us. We are extraordinarily sensitive machines like this. You know, I often kind of talk about that everybody says, oh, we have the best supercomputer, but nobody says we have the best kind of sensors. And as humans, we do. You know, that's what we use our nervous system. Now, before you were talking about this change from a creative society where we had one or two people who were the creative thinkers and the rest of us just kind of followed their lead, like we were dished out orders and we were like, okay, pull that lever at 9 a.m. Now, Obviously, business has dramatically changed. We've gone from that very vertical management system to a horizontal one. And that means people have their own creative projects. Can we tie this together? Because I was having a conversation just the other day about toxic workplaces, bringing in, it was really around diversity, bringing in not just neurodiversity, but different perspectives. And if people are stressed, you hit on something really important there. When you're stressed, you become more closed-minded, more rigid, more habitual in your thinking patterns, which is actually the opposite environment of what you want in a diverse, if you're going to embrace a diverse workplace. I mean, firstly, would you, would you agree with that? I would absolutely. And when I work with companies, I really explore that because in addition to our primitive instincts, another thing that makes change difficult is the cultures we're in. And whether it's a family culture, a community culture, a school, a business, whatever, we are influenced heavily by the attitudes, beliefs, values of the culture we're in. And it's very difficult to resist those forces because we are social beings. And for us to survive, air quotes survive, we need to adopt the norms and the values of that culture. The problem is, unfortunately, so many cultures, especially in the business world, are absolutely toxic. And it's toxic because of ambition. Yeah because of fear of failure, because of worry about rejection, because of a sort of dog-eat-dog mentality. And so it's not just, as you suggest, the one big disruption. It's what I call low-grade stress of being in an environment where you feel threatened, where you don't feel accepted, where you don't feel valued, where you feel different. And so this is the great challenge when we're getting into very sensitive areas here, because I, t- I absolutely support the value of, of diversity, all kinds of diversity. Because I believe that all kinds of diversity opens up the possibility to think in the world different in different ways than than sort of a stereotypical, um, historically white male dominated culture. It is because basically 
we all as individuals or in a particular culture of the group we that are sort of we origin where dominates our lives think guardrails or blinders they become guardrails and blinders and we're missing a lot of amazing stuff and that's why diversity is so so valuable in terms of creativity and and innovation and change so this idea of 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 threat versus opening yourself up is so important and creating a culture of that is so important in a company because if you don't not only are you going to probably have high turnover because nobody likes to be in a, in a, in a highly toxic environment, but you're not going to be able to be as productive as you want. Because again, as we've talked about, when you're in threat mode, you can't think outside the box. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that's one of the big changes, isn't it? A lot of my work, I kind of keep coming back to this realization of kind of how a lot of our societal philosophy the way that we manage businesses, manage ourselves, is very much rooted in the industrial era, very much early industrial revolution. And back then, it didn't really matter if it was a toxic environment. I mean, obviously, it did to the worker, but it didn't from a productivity point of view, because you and me were just employed to turn up when it was daylight and shovel some coal or put on a new bit of wool or whatever they they used. I'm showing my naivety here. But it wasn't about thinking. It wasn't about creating solutions. And we've run with that. And I actually think we've gone way too far with all this kind of efficiency and productivity. Yes, they're very, very important, but they're not the only thing. And we've kind of turned on back on, well, actually, there's a paradox that productivity can increase when you actually step back and control yourself and you bring a better version of you to the game. Right. Uh, I, I agree completely. And another interesting thing about creating healthier cultures is that going back to the original idea of we don't like change. The challenge then is that we've created cultures in the workplace based upon sort of where we're at and who we are and so on. The culture and the workplace has changed dramatically. Um, but the fact is, though, again, we yeah. are fundamentally tribal and we're tribal for ways that served very important purposes as we evolved. We're driven to want to keep things the same. And that's why we see so much resistance to a lot of the changes that were happening, certainly politically over here. We are, again, resisting a lot of evolution in trying to produce a lot of these changes. And that's why it's so difficult. And that's why it's going to take probably you know generations before it makes that switch over to where it's a, to the new normal, if you will. And uh, But it, it takes a ton of yeah, effort I'm and it, it takes a lot of vision, a lot of commitment and, and a lot of buy-in within an organization. I mean, let's not even get into, you know, it, at a national level in, in our respective countries, but simply in, a, in a, a little company with, with X number of employees. And so that's why it's very important to make clear, like, what's the culture and what do we value? Yeah. What are the norms? What are the expectations? Because if that isn't created in a very deliberate, thoughtful way, and built, and the company's not the the company and the and the staff and the employees are not built around that. Then it's going to sort of go back to to the status quo, and that's the ironic thing, isn't it? In an environment where everything's changing, the status quo is the, exactly the last place you want to be, because it's exactly the thing which is being ripped up. But again, people can't think long when they're in threat mode. They can't think long term. Like, what what are the changes we need to make to survive in this world? They're thinking like, how do I survive today? And I do that by resisting change because again, 
unfamiliarity, unpredictability, lack of control equals death back in the Serengeti 250,000 years ago. And even, even maybe, you know, 150 years ago, I don't know. That's the real challenge for us. And, and that takes incredible leadership and an incredible vision in terms of deciding what kind of culture do we want and how do we create it? Fundamentally, it's about the people. It's sort of like sports where the best way to win games or races is to get the best athletes and then train them. Same thing with, with a company. Get the best people who believe in this culture and then immerse them in it. Because if once they're immersive and they're open to it, they will embrace it or they won't. And then they'll leave. I think you've just beautifully segued to something I know I wanted to touch on with you. In my book, I haven't got 19. I've only got one. <laughs> I did actually quote you. And this was about inertia, our inertia to change. And I think it was in a blog post that you wrote that you kind of related it back to, I think it was Sir Isaac Newton's kind of a body in motion. Let's talk about inertia because, I mean, that's really kind of what we're talking about here as well, isn't it? It's that we know that the world's changing. In fact, often when I'm speaking to an audience, I'll ask them two different questions. The first question is simply, put your hand up if you feel like the world's changing. And everybody puts their hand up. I mean, it like shoots up faster than anything. And then you go, okay, keep your hand up if you can tell me and pinpoint how the world's changing. And at that, everybody puts their hand up because, and that's the uncertainty gap, as I call it, is that we're aware at a, an intuitive level, yet most people have no idea actually how it's happening, which come back to your three points. <laughs> that's huge threat. But then even when people do know the, how the world's changing, there's still this inertia. It's like, no, this is familiar. It feels safe. I don't want to head that way. Could you talk a little bit about inertia? Because I know you've dug into this. Uh yeah. Yeah. So this is a metaphor that I use in um, one of my recent books called uh, Change Your Life's Direction. And the idea is that we are very similar to asteroids hurtling through space. So if you apply inertia, Newton's law, um, a, a, an object will continue on its current course unless an, um, a force is exerted on it or an object in motion will stay in motion. An object um, at rest will stay at rest unless a force is exerted on it. I didn't quote Sir Isaac very well there, but close enough. Fundamentally, that asteroid will hurtle on the same trajectory forever until a force is exerted on it. And humans are the same way. We are those asteroids hurtling through space and we will stay on our life's trajectory unless the force is exerted on us. With human inertia, there are two forces. One can be a massive blow, and it might be losing your job, death of a family member, whatever it might be. So it could be just one major blow that knocks you off your life trajectory. The second is um, incremental force. So just little knocks, very gently, slowly knock it off its course until it's on a very different trajectory. And that could be over the course of a career, just growing dissatisfaction with what you do or finding a hobby that just absorbs you until you finally say, okay, I'm going to go after this. Again, we like that inertia because we're, we know where we're going. And even if it's not great, that's the interesting thing. And this is what the irrational part of, of, of human beings is that we will stay in situations, jobs, marriages, communities, whatever, even though we know it's not making us happy, it's not great. Again, because it goes back to my three points, lack of familiarity, lack of control, lack of predictability, that our life now isn't great, but you know, I know what to expect and I've learned to manage it. 
this is where we get to, we get into sort of like sort of existential issues, like why are we on this planet and 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 what do we want out of it during our our, our limited lifetime? And so management, I hate the word management, by the way, because managing something is like getting by, eking it out, just sort of getting on. That's not the way I want to live my life. I, I don't talk about managing my life. I talk about mastering my life and being able to make choices as best you can. And not everybody has the opportunity to make major choices, but we do have the ability, most of us, to decide what life path we want to be on. My life's not great now, but at least I've learned how to figure it out and manage it. But if I make a change, oh my gosh, it might go really bad. That's the fear. That's the thread. That's the scary stuff. And so I'm just going to stay here and be comfortable. It's sort of like comfortable, comfortable, because it's not very comfortable, but it's like, I'm used to it. So I can deal with it. No, that, yeah, I was just going to say, you've touched on something like really interesting there. It's when we change that habit, you know, those kind of, that idea of just slowly knocking away at the asteroid, it actually involves loss, doesn't it? If we change one habit, even if it's a bad habit, and we know it's a bad habit, there's a sense of loss because we're losing familiarity and we're gaining uncertainty, even though it's putting us towards where right. we want to go. There's also what I call the theory of unintended consequences. Like if you make a change, how's that going to affect your family? How's that going to affect your friends? For, for example, exercising. Let's say you're 50 pounds overweight. Well, you probably surround yourself with people who reinforce the, the habits associated with unhealthy living. You know, you eat a lot, you drink too much, you don't exercise. And so if you decide, oh, I'm going to get fit, you're alienating your entire culture, your entire social world. And so one of the most, this is a little, little practical point is that if you want to make a real change, change the people you hang out with. That's a bummer because these people, I love these people. These are my friends because they're not going to react well. When you say, I need to lose weight, I need to start exercising, you're sending an implicit judgment that their lifestyle is bad. And so they're going to do everything they can to sabotage your efforts. I'm sure there's a saying that you're an average of the five people you hang around with the most. Some, I haven't heard that like one, that. but that's actually brilliant. Yeah. Right, yeah. Because we gravitate toward the mean of where everybody is. Yeah. And if you want to be great in terms of how, again, personal greatness. And I was saying for ski racing, if you want to ski like everybody else, be like everybody else. And that works with the rhymes. But if you want to work like everybody else, well, then be, do what everybody else does. Dress like them and think like them and go along with the pack. I don't have any evidence for this, but I'm guessing and I'm believing that the most successful people in life don't do what everybody else does. If you're in a culture, if you're in an environment that supports conformity and by definition, cultures support and encourage conformity, it's harder to change. I think one of the most important things about growing is letting go of the need to be liked. And we're, we're taking a little tangent here, but this is really important. And I don't mean be a jerk. I mean, don't let how you feel about yourself and the choices you make be determined by what other people think of you. So almost don't be externally validated. Right. Be internally right. validated. And, and again, okay. this doesn't have anything to do with being a jerk. This is simply doing what feels right and what's best for you, regardless of what everybody else says. But again, we're, we're not wired to make those choices because we are tribal people. We're pack people, pack beings. And we want to be accepted. We want to be loved. But that can hold you back, especially if you're in a toxic or unhealthy culture or environment. And that's another one of those forces. Culture is one of the most difficult obstacles to change and growth. 
because your culture doesn't want you to change because by definition, your culture thinks its way is the best way. I call it the fuck it attitude. And that, that doesn't mean you don't care. It means you don't care about yep. the result because the result is uncertain. You don't care about what other people think. As long as you're being a good, decent human being, you are just willing to take the shot. And that's another huge philosopher for me. Take the shot. Maybe we can dive into that a little bit. And come what may, because um, Wayne Gretzky, uh, you know, the goat of, of, of ice hockey, professional ice hockey said, I, I missed a hundred percent of the shots I didn't take. And so the ability to change, to move, to exert a force on that asteroid, part of that inertia is culture, family, norms, conformity. And it takes a lot to exert that either, either massive force or that incremental force because I don't know the physics of this, but that asteroid has a lot of energy behind it. And so much of our world, both externally, socially, interpersonally, as well as psychologically, as well as evolutionarily, resists that force because of all the things we've been talking about in terms of survival instinct and acceptance and, and, and being a, a, want to be a, a part of, of the culture. So being able to step back and go, I don't need that external validation. I'm going to find new external validation. So I'm going to join a running club where the culture there is like, let's get out there and be healthy. Or I'm going to find another company where it's all about supporting each other and it's not cutthroat and it's all about producing the best product and not about ego. And don't even get me started on ego in the business world. I've talked a lot about that in the past. And then you start creating that force. And so again, it starts with this, this like, I don't care what other people think. This is where I'm going. And I'm going to let go of my primitive instincts. I'm going to let go of my emotional baggage, my fear of failure, my inadequacies. And I'm going to take the shot. And as part of that, I'm also going to surround myself with people that will get behind me. So it's not just me pushing against that asteroid. It's just all these people. Because then you're not alone. Yeah, no, absolutely. Where I want to go back to, actually, is I want to just dig into identity and our identity and our role in pushing to a new culture or pushing forward. Because you said something really interesting when we were talking about kind of all your books and your work, and you never felt it was work. You felt it was you needed to get this out there because that's who you identify as. Is that an identity which you were just kind of born with and just kind of that just happens to be Jim Taylor? Or is that an identity that you've personally worked on and go, no, that's who I want to be? And is that something you kind of deal with with your clients? I totally deal with, with my clients. But back to is, is something I was born with. There's no way to tell. It's probably a combination of things. There's no doubt that I, I've been, I'm wired. Like I'm an introvert. The way I put it is I have social skills, but not social needs. And so, so I, can have, I can have a conversation with people and, and so on, be around people. It's fine. But I don't have a strong need. So it's easier for me. I'm wired to not give an F what other people think of me. So it's easier than I, I can just decide what path I want to take. And so it's really important to look at like, like what are my genetics? Because the fact is, just like athletics, everybody says like the whole Malcolm Gladwell 10 years, 10,000 hours thing. It's a crock. Because you, 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 know, you see the Williams sisters, LeBron James or Roger Federer or whoever, these superstars, and you think, well, they just put in the time. But what we don't realize is that there were hundreds of thousands of kids who followed the exact same path as all of them and didn't make it. Why? 
because they weren't born seven feet tall. They weren't born with the, the motor skills um, in the business world, the medical world. They weren't born with quite the intelligence. And yes, intelligence is partially derived um, through genetics. Very clear. So it helps if you have the genetics on your side because you're not going to invent the next great thing if you don't have the intelligence. And it's no surprise that, that most of the people who have invented incredible things were incredibly intelligent. But there are also a lot of highly intelligent people who never did because they weren't, put in, they weren't raised in an environment or they had too much baggage or whatever the case might be. Or just simply squandered it. They simply squandered it, yeah. And so, you know, whether it's the yeah. Ted Kaczynski's or the can't miss kids who were number one draft picks and were out two years later, whatever it might be in sports. So did I deliberately strive for my identity? I probably not. Probably my identity was shaped probably from unhealthy drives initially. You know, in a lot of ambition comes out of insecurity and the need to prove yourself. And certainly I, I'm as human as everybody else and a lot of my early success was driven by that need to prove to other people and myself that I'm a worthwhile person. But once you get to a certain point where you have the, some maturity and some self-awareness of your baggage, dude, we're, we're all human. It's part of the human condition. We have crap that we got from our upbringings. We all have it. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who didn't have baggage, but it's not that you have it. It's can you unpack it? And a lot of my work is also about unpacking it. Hold another conversation properly. But let's get back to identity. Identity is really about What's important to you? Your values. And a colleague of mine um, gave me something that stuck to me years ago. He specializes in identity. So what he talked about was, Phil, finish this sentence. My purpose and passion in life is to fill in the blank. My purpose and passion in life is to fill in the blank. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, I mean, it's, it's clear. Like, prepare people for tomorrow. That's my purpose and passion. And that is your North Star. So everything you do in your career, is guided by that North Star of helping prepare people for the future. For me, mine was always to create and share ideas and to help people. It's a great exercise. And if you look at my career, it's all been about that. And so if you have that clarity that clarifies your values, so if I want to do that, what do I need to do? Well, I probably need to work, by, work for myself. And, and I, I will be honest with you, I don't play well that well with, with others um, in the sandbox. Um, but in my advanced age, I've gotten better at it because I've learned to love working with people who are really smart and know more about things than I do. That's another, that ties in also with ego. And again, might be another conversation, but being able to let go of your ego or, or shift your ego away from, I'm the smartest one in the room, I'm in control, I have the power to, let's bring everybody together and create the best possible thing. And I've done that with books that I've written or that I've, that I've edited and, and collaborated with people on. And it's always way better than anything I could write because I, I don't know everything about everything. And you get a bunch of smart people and they each have their chapters. If you're collaborating on a project at work, same sort of thing. And so a great exercise for pretty much any age, but certainly as young people is to figure out what's your identity? What is at your core? Because if you understand what's, your, what's at your core, what fuels you? And this is another metaphor I've been using a lot in the last year or so. What is your fuel? Then everything else comes from that. You can't not do things that are inconsistent with what is authentic in you. The challenge there, of course, Chris, is that we are forced through our cultures to create false selves, inauthentic selves. And there's been a lot of writing on this, and I've written about it a lot. 
because we need to be accepted. And this is where the effort attitude comes in. I don't need to be accepted. I'm going to be loved and cared by and supported by the people who are important to me, but everybody else, I don't give a shit. And again, I give a shit if I'm a jerk, but I'm not a jerk very often. So from that position of, I know who I am, I know my identity, then everything will come from that. Here's the challenge, Chris, and this goes into the fuel issue. Uh, a lot of my work is about helping people identify what fuels them, what's in their tank. Because unfortunately, because of so much crap in our culture, the messages we get from our culture, and, and sadly, the internet, I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but it's also been an, an incredibly destructive way to promulgate values, attitudes, beliefs, norms that are just unhealthy. But if you can really understand what fuels you, and so I talk about contaminated fuel. So contaminated fuel, like perfectionism, fear of failure, those can fuel you. They get you pretty far. Where my clients are trying to get to, it's not going to get them all the way because it's contaminated. And a lot of my work uses this metaphor of get rid of the contaminated fuel, put rocket fuel, sure, 100% rocket fuel in your tank. And then you're going to get as far as you can go. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be the best in the world or you're going to be, get that unicorn company. But ultimately, all we can do is with what we have. So, you know, going back to ski racing, and I think you can relate to this yourself, Chris. When I was 13, I wanted to be the best ski racer in the world. Totally unrealistic. But I didn't know that. And you got a dream. But unless you're at the top of the podium or you are the richest person in the world or you've invented the cure for cancer, discovered the cure for cancer, you're going to have to accept at some point you're not going to be the very best. But that's okay because that's not the point. The point is to be your very best. Because again, I've worked with Olympic champions. I've worked with millionaires. I've worked with unbelievable surgeons, all these different fields. And they talk about their experiences the same way that everybody else does. It's just at a higher level. So I work with professional triathletes, for example, because that's, that's, that's my passion. And they're faster than me because they have better genes and they've had more opportunity and they've been able to work at it a lot. But when they cross the finish line, here's an example. So I worked with an Olympic champion in another sport um, and I've worked with a number of them, but this one particular stood out. Um, she, um, she won a gold medal. And so a few hours after she, okay. calls, she calls me and says, Dr. Jim, Dr. Jim, I had an amazing day. And I go, so tell me about it. So she's telling me about how she felt in the morning and how her preparations and how she performed and what it felt like to finish. And then she stops. And there's a silence. And I said, well, and I understand you won the gold medal. And she goes, oh yeah, that was cool too. Very few of us can win the gold medal, but we can all experience that same thing. And that's the, the personal greatness yeah. that we all strive for. And for some of us, it's number one in the world. But statistically speaking, there's only one who can be at the top of the world. And certainly in the business world, other areas, there can be a lot of really good, amazingly successful people. But ultimately, all you can do is the best with what you got. A basketball coach once said, you can't teach height. So you might have the best hook shot in the world, but if you're not seven feet tall, you ain't playing in the NBA. You're not, you're not, you're not a, center, a center in the NBA or six foot six in the WNBA. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that. There, there's some great metaphors. So to kind of wrap this up, I, I'm going to let you kind of choose where we end. I mean, you've talked about kind of taking the shot. That was something you said, you know, maybe circle back to. 
You said maybe ego, and I'm going to throw one more suggestion in there for you, and that is that we've talked a lot about inertia, about change, about kind of progressing towards a goal, but in a rapidly changing environment, there isn't necessarily a goal. It's about being flexible because it's we don't actually know exactly the way the world's changing. So there, there, there are kind of three topics. Pick one to finish on. I mean, I, I, maybe I'll address all of them a little bit. Um, one, the foundation of removing threat is letting go of the fear of failure. If you stop fearing failure, you're free to give it everything you got. And ultimately, that's all you can do. Tied in with that, of course, is taking the shot because you're not going to take the shot if you think you're going to miss. And I work with a lot of athletes. They, they have a clear shot on a goal in soccer or whatever it is. Or, they're, or they, if they just give everything they've got, they can have real success, but they hold themselves back. So number one, let go of, of the fear of failure because at the heart of fear of failure is that you will die psychologically, socially. But the fact is, if you fail, you'll be disappointed for sure, but you'll still survive. If they can embrace that, if you can embrace that belief, you're free to give it everything you've got. And that's all you can do. I was going to say, I, I was on a writing course a, a few, maybe 12 months ago. And uh, the guy leading it, a guy called David Hyatt, he had this great phrase, which is very similar to what you said. He calls it releasing the handbrake. Like you've just got to release the handbrake and, and let it go. But completely, we've just got to get over that hurdle. Yeah. So second, I suppose, is, is really dig into yourself, understand and let go of your baggage. And, you know, whether it's be, be getting counseling, reading books, doing seminars, there are a lot of roads to Rome. But as long as you have an emotional baggage that's grounded in fear, it's of failure, you never get where you want to go. And that is an amazingly painful and difficult journey. It's one I've, I've, I, I deal with professionally, but also one I deal with personally, for sure. And so you will never be able to let yourself go and open yourself up and be free if you're in that constant state of protecting yourself from the pain you think you're going to feel if you experience all the stuff related to your emotional baggage. And as related to that, let's maybe finish with ego. And this is something I can speak to at a very personal level, because when you're highly defended, you have to protect yourself, which means you put yourself first and you push people away. And for many years in my career, people always respected me because I did really good work, but I wasn't very well liked. Because I wasn't, I wasn't a, 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 a bad, per, a mean person. I was just closed off. I was highly defended. Because it was all about protecting myself, my self-esteem, my self-identity, my value as a person. But through a lot of hard work, life experience, pain, I've been able to let go of a lot of that. Still have an ego for sure. And I don't like it when people don't think I do a good job, but I screwed up. Like here's what has a great thing to do. Your ability to say, I fucked up. I made a mistake. Yeah. I was wrong. Oh my gosh, I get emotional just saying that, Chris, because it's hard to say, because people think that's weakness, but that is, takes incredible strength. And we, are in a, we live in a culture of blame others, lack of accountability, lack of responsibility. It's not my fault. It's, uh, let's find somebody else to blame because that protects me. But if you can own your humanity, and maybe it's a great place to end, if you can own your humanity and say, look, I'm human, I screwed up, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Period. Because what most people do, they'll say all that stuff maybe, then they'll put a comment and go, but here's the reason why. And as soon as you do that, yeah. it nullifies the ownership. It nullifies the accountability. And that is something I practice constantly because as human beings, we protect ourselves. And, and so if somebody 
thinks I do something. I'm just like, oh, but here's the, here's the reason why. No, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I screwed up. And do you know how that makes me feel after? So good. It's the right thing. It was a strong thing. It, it doesn't push people away. People come in. And I've actually, oddly enough, people actually think I'm a really nice person now, which is kind of really gratifying for somebody. People didn't always feel that way. Just coming back to that kind of idea that we were talking about, like we are social beings. We co-regulate. You know, you saying that to somebody else suddenly, as you say, brings down those castle walls and lets somebody else in. Right. But not only that, it gives them permission to let their walls down as well. Because if, if think about yeah. it this way, if somebody's walking toward you literally and you're going like this, what are they likely to do? Stop or run away. Whereas if I'm standing here with open arms, what are they going to do? They're going to open their arms and give me a hug because I have no weapons here. And the, you know, again, using the metaphor, yeah. you know, the reason the handshake, you know what, how the handshake developed? It was to show the other person that you didn't have a weapon in your head. But that brings us full circle, doesn't it? Back to that evolutionary part that we walk out of our cave. You might not be the one who saw the lion, but I did. And you want to be able to respond as if you did by my body language, by what I'm giving off. Right. Here's another way to look at it. Let's get rid of the lion and think of a rival tribesman with a big club. And like, he's got this club and he's coming at, he's walking toward me. And my initial evolutionary reaction is to grab my club or go like this or run. If I'm willing to take a chance and I might not do that in the Serengeti 250,000 years ago, but I'm willing to do it now. If I'm willing to go like this yep. to somebody who might be a threat to me, then they see that and go like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so hungry to, to be hugged or to, be, to, to not have to protect myself because it's tiring to protect yourself. It's stressful to protect yourself. And so just like you, you feel better physiologically, you're happier, you have better relationships, open yourself up. The vast majority of the time, not always, the vast majority of the time, if you open yourself up, other, gonna, other people are going to open themselves, themselves up too. And then that's life. That is what life is about. Openness, connection, feeling deeply, all the good stuff. Well, I think that is definitely the point to kind of call it. I mean, it, I, we've just solved humanity's issues in an hour. So, um, Jim, it has been an absolute pleasure. I think you and me could just keep talking for the rest of the day, but a podcast must end at some point. And I think we have kind of reached that a great point to, to close it. Before you go, could you give people where they can find out more about you? Because I'm sure people will want to dive into all of your 19 books and everything else you do. Sure. Well, uh, Chris, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but they have this thing called the internet now and they have um, websites. <laughs> and, and of course, I have a website. Uh, it's drjimtaylor.com, drjimtaylor.com. I'm also on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, and LinkedIn. And so um, it's been, a, again, also for me, a great pleasure chatting up. I love some, talking to smart people about things that we're both passionate about. And so um, I know we could go on for hours, so maybe we'll have another because you'll invite me back at some time in the future to talk more about this stuff. We'll do another session. Yeah, there's so much more to go on. But no, thank you so much. My pleasure. Great, great fun. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions.
All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.